Greetings and welcome to Office Hours. If you are new here and you want to learn a little bit more about what we do, head over to officehours.global. Our first hour, we answer your questions on digital production and technology. And our second hour is something we typically want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we'll be talking about sales. How do you get and keep those clients? Producers, go ahead and submit your questions now. And speaking of questions, Bill, let's get this party started. Absolutely. Our first one comes in from our old friend, Carby Weinzweig in Redondo Beach, California. And he asks, what would be the minimum configuration server needed to support PFSense and an intrusion detection system like the Suricata at 10 gigabits per second? Go ahead, Jason. I wouldn't use a server for this. And keep in mind, in order to need something different at 10 gigabits per second, um, you would need an internet connection that would be 10 gigabits per second. An intrusion detection system is only going to be monitoring your outbound traffic. So um, I would I would simply use hardware. Um, High-end ubiquity router will do this, and it's pretty stinking fast. I, I wouldn't rely on a server. Next question. Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York comes up next and says, could you remind me again why we never want to connect a TV to the internet? Is it only a security issue? Jason? Boy, I wish. Um, it's because the hardware manufacturers of modern panels have decided that they could, or figured out that they could supplement the cost of the hardware by basically selling your information through the software. So um, no, it's basically spyware on your TV. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, Jason's exactly right. They're spying on us. They want to know our data usage and where we spend our time. And um, that's probably the only way you can get away with uh, eliminating that. Even if you answer the question, uh, some of them, like my Sony, says share data with uh, Sony headquarters or whatever. And uh, you you click that or not click that. You can opt out if you want to. But I go. I do everything through my Apple TV, pretty much that needs to be connected to the internet to stream, and I trust Apple. Or should I, Alex? Yeah. In addition to all of that, the uh, the the all the applications that are sitting on your TVs are vastly underpowered. So the one of the big problems that you have is that the the chips are not you know are the the cheapest they could put possibly into those things. So any app that you see on your on, um, on something else like an Apple TV. Uh, the version of it, even including Apple TV Plus, <laughs> that that runs on the TV is very underpowered compared to the one on the Apple TV and and many other desktop um, device uh, over the top devices. So the TVs are really just a bad experience. They are a security experience, <laughs> and you and they're selling your data. So all of those things together lead you lead me to believe that I should not connect my my TV. My none of my TVs talk to the internet. They are what they are. They're a screen, um, and they connect to an OTT box. For me, that's an Apple TV, and that's what gets to get gets connected to the internet. Next question. Army is back from Redondo Beach with this one. What uh, that would be the minimum? What would be? Excuse me. The minimum configuration true NAS server that could support two to three clients at two, uh, 25 gigabits per second, and is fast enough to support editing several 4K streams. Alex. Yeah, I mean, most of us, uh, you know, it, it's when it comes to NAS. I mean, I, I think that when you start talking about those kinds of speeds, I, I, I don't really work with NAS at that speed. <laughs> like, like it's, it, it very rarely works well at that. At, when you start talking about those kind of clients at that speed, you really start wanting to start thinking about directly attaching 
your storage to the to the system, if, especially if you have multiple clients there. Uh, it you're really talking about a, a a lot of investment, you know, in, to make that actually work. It's not a it's not a minor problem, and and I've very rarely seen it work. Usually, when we're trying to do that, we're pulling that data off of it, we're working on it, and then we're putting it back on um, to make that work. Jason. Yeah, I've built a couple of networks that are this fast, but I, nobody's ever even asked about using them for video editing because it makes a whole lot more sense to spend your money on really fast local storage. You pull it down, you check it out, you edit it, you throw it back up, you check it back in. Next question. Next one comes to us from Bo Cordell in Charleston, South Carolina. Bo says, I'm ready to overhaul my LinkedIn profile, but I don't know where to start. Any suggestions on what my first steps should be? Go ahead, Noah. Yes, it's on my to-do list as well. So the first thing I am going to do is analyze my page, right, and figure out all of its chunks or all the blocks, right? So that way I can come up with a list of all the things that I want to address or get to. Um, another thing that could be super helpful is to look at another company or another person that is, um, you know, in the similar field of, of what you do and then basically mimic um, some of the things that they do and, and try to see, oh, that's working or, oh, that's not working. You know, cross-reference a few pages. That way you have more than one to go off of and you're not just carving, copying somebody else's. So, yeah. Mitchell? Very uh, suspicious of the job offers I get from LinkedIn. I think they've got my profile messed up. The other thing is, while you're at it, um, use a picture of yourself from this century. That actually is a really good tip. Uh, well, first, I would say go back to we had Cher Jones on and she's one of the LinkedIn educators and and teachers. So go back to an office hours. It was last summer, I believe it was. She gave a lot of valuable information on branding and positioning yourself. I would say, too, is what is your end goal? Is it a matter of, is it job? Is it thought leadership? Because that's going to depend on what kind of information that you share. You always want to share recent relevant information and show how you can provide value, um, added value, and demonstrate that you're, and demonstrate that you're the person they should either hire or that they want to be a part of of a certain type of project. So just thinking through those elements. And once you figure that out, what your goal is, then you want to think of, okay, well, what are those content pillars? What kind of content do I need to share or um, continue to to put out there um, your projects and just sharing the, not the, I think Alex calls it like the, the humble brag. That's one of, not, not from that perspective, but showing like taking us through the journey of like how you built something or how you were the behind the scenes. People always love the behind the scenes because what it does is it shows us how you think. And that for, again, going back to your goals, the end game um, could be very important for the person that's either looking to connect with you or looking to hire you for a project. Alex? Yeah, the, the number one thing you want to think about with any sharing on any any platform is use. Like, who is it serving? And is it serving, are you trying to promote yourself or are you trying to serve the audience that may potentially read that? Um, and it should always be number one, service should always be number one. Like just, you're just, I learned something or here's something that might be useful to everyone. Here's something that looks like, and if you just stay focused on that, like stop thinking about trying to, uh, put your name out or try to get that, you know, you, you, you are doing that, but you want to do the, the major focus should always be and everything about it and how you write it should always be how do I serve the person that's going to potentially look at this and not have them feel like I'm just trying to sell them something. Next question. Uh, again, from Carmi Weisevink and uh, Redondo Beach. And the question this time is, what is the least expensive home kit compatible color changing LED strip light? Mitchell? 
Carmi, I got to ask, are you going to put this on camera? And if so, uh, one of the criteria for picking them is to get one that uh, that doesn't fade by flashing the light at a uh, speed that's uh, contrary to what your camera is going to like. Otherwise, you're going to have flickering LEDs. So I would place that into your criteria for lowest cost because you need one that's going to be nice. And I think an RGBW or WW uh, would work. Uh, Elgato makes one that I'm using right behind me, and it's super solid. Jason? I'm going to go with the Miros, M-E-R-O-S-S. And again, I'm not sure if this is camera safe, but it certainly is cheap. Keep in mind, the cheaper end of the HomeKit stuff is the stuff that doesn't tend to get updated frequently. Miros tends to be an exception to that. Um, I've seen a number of different firmware updates. But yeah, be sure you've got a, a managed HomeKit router and turn the security way up on these things. 16 bucks. the link's in Mukana. Alex? Yeah, and as we move forward, what you're really not you're not really looking for HomeKit anymore. You're looking for Matter. So you're trying to figure out what your you know what is the Matter compatibility. And so I think that a lot of stuff, including like the Philips uh, light strips and so on and so forth, I think are, some of them are Matter um, uh, capable. But as Apple, like if you saw the new um, their new speakers, <laughs> you know, are Matter compatible, and you'll probably see more of that. Um, and I'm I'm just uh, channeling Nigel. <laughs> so so but he's, but he's been talking about it a lot. Is that we probably want to stop directly interacting with HomeKit because it's been pretty much a, from an adoption perspective, kind of a failure. So, um, so I think that, uh, I think that matter is going to be probably the thing that a lot of us are looking at. Go ahead, Noah. I just want to throw up a little cautionary stuff, uh, regard regarding led lights and cheap ones. So, um, basically if you get the cheap ones and they're not made well, they're going to flicker like Mitch said, but they also like hurt your eyes, right. And they can cause strain and, um, migraines. And so, um, you definitely want to look for something that has, a little bit more quality than the cheapest thing that you can find, right? And then the other thing, obviously CRI is what people have looked for for a long time, but there's even a better term, um, and it's basically the R9. So there's this uh, spectrum of light that it releases, you know, across the wavelengths. And so um, a lot of the manufacturers have been cheating that CRI rating, and so R9 helps kind of dial that in, and hopefully Alex can uh, shed some more light on that detail. Go ahead, Alex. Well, I think most of the, I think hopefully with an LED light strip, we're not, we're really mostly thinking about fun and color and so on and so forth. And so, so I wouldn't worry, you know, I worry mostly about the, that interaction. Um, there's a lot of them that run on the phones as well. So if you were looking for something that's just a lot of fun, it's not going to tie in completely into HomeKit, but there's a lot of them. The one that's sitting behind me, you know, of course I can, um, you know, go to scenes and start to drive everybody crazy by making the move and, and uh, changing the bits and pieces and all of that. We've actually used this in production because the DMX version was going to be about, uh, I think three or four thousand dollars in the uh, in the in the non DMX version it was like five hundred dollars. <laughs> so so anyway, so uh, they you know there's a lot of control. There is a there is a also a protocol that you can use, and I can't think of it at the top of my head. So for f those who are geeky, all of these are running off of pretty much the same protocol, and they can be um, tied into you know with a little bit of time into an Arduino or other things like that as well. And then you can build your own. But if you're looking for again HomeKit light strips, look for Matter Matter capable light strips. Carmi said in the comments that it's for the garage. That's a nice garage. <laughs> right, Mitchell? Uh, and also, as a courtesy, all Christmas lights must be removed by the end of January. Next question. Next question is from Bo Cordell in Charleston, South Carolina. And Bo says, how far do you go with network security for your production network? Does anyone set up a proper dashboard to monitor stats and logs? What about using more advanced tools, such as those that can be found in the security onion suite? 
Go ahead, Jason. Um, I guess I should define a production network. My production networks are the things that are carrying Dante or, you know, things that are actually mission critical and time critical, and they are never connected to the internet. They are their own connection anytime I'm doing a job, and they never connect to anything at all else at all. So I on those networks, no, I don't use any security. Alex? Yeah, I, I think that a lot of times we, we look at the security of how what is someone going to actually want. Our mission critical stuff, as Jason said, if, if it's running production, a lot of times we try to not have it connected to the internet. Now, we have a lot of remote staff, so we have to connect it. So then we're using some some sort of VPN um, to tie that in. So usually folks are, are accessing our stuff through, um, you know, Meraki VPN is usually the, the, the one that we use the most. Um, and so that VPN is there. I wouldn't say that we go much further than that, mostly because you know, out of um, over 2,000 events, we haven't had any incursions. Even we've done some pretty some stuff that was <laughs> included state actors. <laughs> so, so we, um, you know, the, the the thing that gets you is not so much someone like basically um, uh, bashing through your network. I mean, at least we haven't. It's, it's usually someone making a mistake and clicking on the wrong thing. You know, like that's, you know, it comes down to, you know, the, the security is only as good as the people that are running the security. And most of the security flaws come from human errors allowing people access to the to the network. Um, I think that, in, and again, once you're in some kind of managed network like Meraki or other things like that, we can see something popping out or something, um, you know, going there. We don't have alerts, but we usually have those windows open. So if we start seeing something, you know, rolling out, but but again, um, in production, the things that don't need to be connected to the internet aren't connected to the internet. We generally. Uh, for a lot of our most critical productions, we generally try not to have many PCs connected to the network. <laughs> you know, so, so we try to minimize the number of PCs that, that are allowed. We have a lot of PCs and a lot of uh, Linux boxes in the production. We just try to keep them away from, and we definitely don't like, like them using things like web browsers. So um, they're just harder to manage. Next question. Next one comes to us from Alexander Knight here on the panel from Vancouver, Vancouver, excuse me, British Columbia. Is it possible to use Zoom ISO on an M1 or M2 Mac Mini without the expensive Sonnet box and DeckLink card? I only need two ISO outputs. Jason? Mm, not really. Mitchell? Um, yeah, even the light version uh, will run NDI out. If you're good with NDI, you can get away with not using the Sonnet. And Alexander, if you want to pop in to, yeah. yeah, explain. Well, the thing is, I don't really have remote guests that come on that often. So it's right. a pretty expensive proposition for me. So I just want to be able to improve if there's, if it's feasible to improve the color and the frame rate that you can through Zoom ISO, but it seems like that's not realistic right now. Yeah. So uh, NDI, Siphon, all work. So like a lot of the tests that I've been doing in the back end of this show have been using Memo Live, and so I'm using Siphon to go out of, you know, and I've been pulling as many feeds out as I can out of out of uh, Zoom ISO, throwing them into uh, Memo Live and being able to cut them, and that works fine. So that's Siphon, and if you're doing something from the computer to the same computer, you want to use Siphon. It's going to be a lower CPU hit than NDI, so you don't want to use NDI in, in, in the same computer. If you're sending that out to another computer, of course, NDI is going to work fine. So you're going to be able to do NDI. Um, I think with that computer, you'll probably get... I mean, eight starting to push the outer limits. I think of what what you want to do with a with a um, with a Mac Mini. Um, the other thing you can do, of course, is uh, you can use the HDMI outs. The problem with the HDMI outs is the little orange dot. So if you're using this, you're going to see a little orange dot up in the upper corner, um, and I believe that that's going to be the case anytime you're using an HDMI other than your main screen um, going out. You're going to see that little orange dot from the HDMI's. Um, so so that's going to be the 
uh, as far as I know. But the siphon and the NDI work fine, and you can, um, you know, depending on whether whether you have light or pro or the the light or the pro, you'll have um, either I think four, or, I think it's four or more or all. <laughs> you know, so uh, as far as outputs go, depending on your CPU usage. Um, and we we expect to get more and more out of that. Um, the Memo Live stuff works great, by the way. I mean, we you know it's uh, you know you can uh, I've been I pushed eight uh, last week, eight out of I was on a, a studio, but I pushed eight out of ISO and into Memo, and everything seemed to be working just fine. Mitchell, I've heard it said by the gentleman in San Francisco that the deck link combination is the most stable. Um, I don't know how far that goes, but uh, I've heard that. So you should put that into your consideration yeah, that if, using a deck link is the best way to do it. If you're just doing two, you can probably do a lot of different ways to do it. Again, using something like Siphon or NDI to Ecamm or, or to Memo Live or OBS or whatever is probably going to work fine. Once you start doing more of those, I think the specific thing with SDI is that it's just a lot more efficient. So um, basically, the you know writing to the SDI output card is more efficient. You're not going to have the the orange evil dot, um, and uh, and and you're you're going to be able to put a lot of outputs. One Mac Mini with eight gigs, M1 is eight outputs without. Um, it's up to well, and we put it up to sixteen, and it was still doing it. So eight, but it'll do eight outputs at under fifty percent utilization. Alexander. Yeah, I should have actually said I, I need to be able to get the HDMI output into my switcher because I, I need to be able to live stream this stuff. So I'm directly from the ATEM. I'm not using any kind of software for that. Right. Wait, you want to get it out to the to the to the switcher. Yeah, I need to get it into the switcher so I can right. so I can cut it and, and stream directly. Yeah, I think that you'd have to have something that's taking NDI to HDMI, you know, probably to to send it out. Or you can do two two outputs. The problem you're going to have with a Mac Mini is you can only, you only really have to the plug. You have the pluggables. People do use the pluggables for that. I wouldn't put that into production though, myself. <laughs> so, so. Next question. Joseph Mueller in Guelph, Ontario, Canada says, which similarly priced Mac computer would you buy and why? And here are his uh, notations. They both have 32 gigabytes of RAM, a terabyte SSD, and a gig uh, and 10 gigabyte Ethernet. And he wants us to compare a Mac Mini M2 Pro with 12 CPU and 19 GPU cores, or a Mac Studio M1 Max with 10 CPU and 32 GPU cores. Jason? Uh, I'm going to go with, it depends, but um, to me, this all comes down to displays. If you need um, more than two or three displays, um, then it's the studio all the way. For everything else, I'm going to go with the M2. Noah? Yeah, I would start with the newest chip, the M2 uh, Pro, and then work your way down. Like like um, Jason just said, like if you need the ports, specific ports or a specific display set, that's something you might uh, want to consider as well. And Alex? Yeah, the uh, you want to if if there's this, at the same price you want to get the Max <laughs> you want to get the Studio and and the, you're gonna have the, the it's the it is Airflow um, this half of the Studio is a fan you know and so that's gonna make a big difference on sustained um, pressure on the on the network on the CPU or GPU so you're definitely gonna want a Studio when they get close to price I mean while you can get a Mac Mini the reason you would get a Mac Mini is for form factor I'm gonna do something I know it's gonna slow down a little bit but I want to put it in a one U I want to put a bunch of these Mac Minis in one U's that are there and I want them to be able to arc up to something but I'm not gonna run again I, I don't even think it would work like I I looked at them pretty carefully over the weekend 
thinking about what it would take to build a render farm, you know, with, with the Mac minis. And the problem with that is really the heat dissipation. So you might be able to do it if you nearly refrigerated the rack that you're in. So, so if you, if you could have a bunch of Mac minis, but you would want to put them in a box and then just feed air conditioning into them so that they, so that box sits at like 45, 50 degrees and they, and then they probably would, would be very efficient um, at, at doing things like rendering or, or other things like that, but they would have to be kept the room that they were in would have to be kept abnormally cold, I think, before otherwise they would overheat and start to slow down. When we've seen that with other M M one and M twos, is that the you know with the Mac with the air it will slow down after about twenty minutes of sustained work. Which if you're not going to do that, then it doesn't matter. But if you're doing compression or rendering or other things like that, that starts to become a big deal. And Mitchell, uh, to add what Alex said, the uh, M one can be rack mounted with a <clears throat> OWC. And with a Sonnet uh, device that uh, allows it to have your Mac Mini and a PCIe card in there also, which is kind of a nice touch. And I think Alex has said before that the studio is an awkward size, so there's very few uh, rack mounts available for it because the rack doesn't measure the, an equal number of have, uh, rack units. You just have to give up three units. For the, the studio, you feel like it should be two, and it's just about a, <laughs> about a half an inch or quarter of an inch too lot too high to do it so you just have to know that you're going to give up uh of three units for you know two of those going across next question next question comes from alexander knight again here on the panel from vancouver british columbia testing the new multi-channel audio select feature in zoom desktop client 5.13.6 has anyone tested this it lost all of my settings the next time i powered on my mixer alex so so alex you 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 set it up and then you restarted and when you came back, whatever the other, the new channels uh, were there, were gone. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, powered on my mixer, opened up Zoom again, and then I went into the the multi-channel select and all, it just defaulted to selecting all the channels, which it, I didn't have. So my guess is, is that this is the first time they they put it out there. So <laughs> I would, I would definitely... Um, put it into support, and I'd also put it into uh, into our Discord, which might actually be even faster than Zoom support. Next question. Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana in the USA says, Epic and Match antitrust case against Google goes to trial on November 6th. Android seems to be different, uh, a different premise than the Apple case. Do we see this as something to keep an eye on for those developing apps, or is it just a nothing burger? Go ahead, Alex. It's never a nothing burger because courts are fickle. You know, you, anytime you go into a court, you don't know what is going to come out. So, so that I, you know, there, there, anytime there, it's in a court case, the the problem really is, is that it's really hard to calculate. I, I, I'm not a big fan of the the idea that antitrust should be something that is applied to some to a company that has fifty percent of the market or sixty percent of the market. It's when it has complete controlling you know, market, you know, control, controlling interest of the market. So when Microsoft, everyone compares this to Microsoft, but Microsoft had 92% of the market when it happened. <laughs> like, you know, it was, a, it, that's a much different thing than it being split between two things. Also, you know, the, because of the way the Android platform is used, there's lots of different flavors of Android. There's lots of different other things like being able to, you know, just saying that Google is the only one, anybody can build their store. Anybody can do a lot of, you know, there's a lot of things that are much more, much wider opened. Um, so, you know, obviously, and, and we just want to remember that this is a rich person's game. This is not the little people trying to fight the big people. These are rich, this is, these are big, rich companies trying to get 
more rich. <laughs> like, you know, like, like, you know, so they're not. And, and the problem really comes down to when we start cracking these things open, um, the small developers do not benefit from this because they are, um, because a small developer, I'm a, I, I work on products that are small develops, <laughs> you know, development. The small developer really leans on confidence and trust. And that means that a single year market, marketplace is really good for a small developer because I'm willing to buy your product because I don't, I just, I'm willing to trust it. Um, a, uh, it also, it doesn't, uh, you know, help the user at all, you know, because the, the user is, uh, um, you know, going to now have a fragmented market, less secure market. And, and people will say that that's not true, but they're just wrong. <laughs> like, you know, they're, they're, it, it will be less secure and it will be more fragmented and it'll be more frustrating for the user. Um, but the rich companies that are trying to push this through, the, the really wealthy companies that don't want to pay 30% instead of 15%, they'll get richer. So they're, they're, they'll benefit from it. But nobody, nobody else. So this is for one or 2% of the market to make more money and the other 98% get um, burned. So, so hopefully the, the, the courts understand that, but, you know, they're not the most techie. So we'll see how that goes. Next question. Alexander Knight's up next again from Vancouver. I have a set, I have set up my TES Smart 4x4 HDMI matrix. It's the model HMAO404A1U and have it connected to my network. The manual has zero documentation about how to access the web interface. It just says it accepts TCP IP commands. Is the monoprice matrix just as vague? Go ahead, Alexander. Yeah, so I, I've, I've gone through a couple of different uh, HDMI matrixes, and this one I thought it was a little strange because it has the network port on it. I connected it. I don't see it on my network. The manual doesn't make any reference to this. I tried downloading the manual directly from the manufacturer's website to see if they had an updated copy of it. I found some other vague documentation that's not specific to this model that mentioned connecting to network but it's just it seems a little strange to me that there's no there's no mention of that alex yeah you probably could fish it out of if if you've got a router that can tell can talk about what it what it's seeing you can you can potentially fish it out if you can get it to be a dhcp a lot of times these are you know 10.001s or they are you know there's usually some things that we can kind of fish through i will say that i have the eight by eight blackbird and uh its instructions were very clear you know, on how to do it. So I'm, um, you know, getting to the, you know, it, it didn't do TCP/IP. It's got a, it's got a web interface that that makes it work, and I mean, it might have a TCP/IP interface as well. But but it was, it had a very clear um, uh, instruction manual on how to do it. Um, you know, so I, I I think that it, it might just be an oversight by the company that made the four by four. Next question. Next one comes to us from Douglas Carmichael, and he asks, where could you purchase sound-absorbative ceiling panels for building a studio at home? Jason? Last project I did was for a large conference room, um, and I bought prime acoustic panels from DVE Store, and they were amazing. Guy? Hey, thanks for getting those from us. Yeah, there were. I believe you got these, the uh, Prime Acoustic. These are the same ones that we have at our our office. Yeah, we have about 30 of these hanging across our office. I'll put the link to the chat. The other model that uh, we're uh, putting in the one-button studio rooms are the, made by F-Sorb. So you, you want to be looking at uh, 
what what the frequencies are because they don't soak up much base. So it depends on what you're trying, what reflections you're trying to get rid of. So there's some studies that you can analyze with a room configurator and you could have, you could send it in to Prime Acoustics and they will actually send you back what the recommendations are based on the frequencies as well. So if you, if you need like base traps and things like that, you want to be careful of what you're buying because it's not that simple. You could just buy like a Prime Acoustics London room kit, which is what I have, which is like a basic kit with uh a bunch of these, I can't grab one right now because I'm tied in, but a, a two by uh, four foot uh, panel versus a bunch of the little square ones. And then there's there's all kinds of tools that you can get. But Fzorb is the other company I'd be looking at because they're uh, made from re- recyclable plastic and they're lighter and um, you could paint them. So it just depends on uh, what kind of look and what kind of price point that you're going after as well. Mitchell? Yes, uh, I, I I agree with what everything is said before. Um, I'll go to my uh, studio here. I've got the classic Sonics uh, ceiling tiles, and uh, they just drop into a a two by two ceiling type arrangement. Sorry about the uh, great camera work here. Um, the other thing to be on the lookout for with any kind of ceiling material or any kind of soundproof material is to make sure that it is fire rated and uh, it's not giving off uh, VOCs. That's uh, a very strict. Uh, regulations on it for um, uh, bad stuff that you can breathe in uh, and uh, and it can mess you up. So uh, the important thing is make sure it's rated properly. I'm sure the Prime Acoustic stuff the guy was mentioned has that. There's another company called uh, Acoustics First in Richmond. You can buy it direct from them if you if you need those kind of materials. But there's a ton of stuff out there. Just be careful when you're buying it. Make sure it's rated. And Bill. Gotten really good advice from everybody here so far. The only thing I would suggest, though, is before you buy something, do do what um, Jason suggested and give your room a rational listen and, and use test equipment if you can. See if there are standing waves and things like that. Sometimes you need modest absorbent qualities just to keep some slapback. Sometimes you need to go with the big guns or something like maybe this that has much more diffusion capability into it. And how will you know if you don't know the size of the problem you're trying to fix. And that comes from the geometry of your room and where your speakers are set up and where your microphones are set up and so forth. And Mitchell. Yeah, to Bill's point, when you walk into a room that's properly treated, you can feel it. It's it's hard to explain. It's not an anacholic chamber. But uh, when I walk into my room because of these ceiling tiles, my body says, uh, there's something something's done. It's, it's almost as if there's a little bit of pressure. And it is. It's just not a reverb time. Next question. Uh, Ian Alford in London is up next. I'm confused about the structure my production company should have. Is anyone using matrix management structures in 2023 or is that so 1980? Alex? Well, I don't know what a matrix structure is. I mean, I, I, I looked at it. I kind of looked at the overview and I was like, yeah, that's how all my companies have worked. <laughs> so, so I guess that there's, we don't have it. I don't, I don't know. I think consultants get paid a lot to create uh, structures for things that just make sense, which is that, we had a bunch of folks that were in authority and we had a bunch of folks that were that would discuss what we needed to get done and then there were other people that needed to get it done. <laughs> and it wasn't, I don't think that we ever had a real like, this is my, this is the person I report to. In, at least in my, in my companies, I, we haven't really had that. We've just had like, people need to get things done and they get them done. And I know that within PixelCore at 40 people, you know, we didn't have any formal structure to how that was supposed to happen. There was just a bunch of discussions. I mean, there were definitely people that were in a, in probably a realm of authority that if if we said that something really needed to get done, it would get done. But 
there wasn't, um, I, you know, I, I didn't, there was not like, a, I have to talk to this person to talk to that person kind of structure. As it gets larger, it might make sense. But I think that at least from my experience, uh, under 10 or 15 or 20 people, uh, I don't think you need that. And again, I got up to about 40, 45 people that I didn't feel like I needed to, to, to do that. There were definitely people in, in authority and people that had less authority, but there wasn't like a chain of command. Next question. Next question comes to us from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. And Chris says, Amazon is closing Amazon Smile. As of February 20th, the program will be shuttered. Several of the nonprofits I work with would randomly get small checks from them. Is there something similar for nonprofits as a replacement? Alex? It was, it was, it was a, I think Amazon Smile was a good idea that was just poorly implemented. It was always weird, you know, like as, as someone who just wanted to go order something. If I could have, here's what I think Amazon made the mistake of, is if I could have, just somewhere in a preference said, this is the nonprofit I want money to go to, and then never had another page come up, then it would have been fine. Like it was just this constant up, you know, I was just like, oh, no. Like, like I just, and, 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 um, and so, but it just needed to be a preference uh, in the back end of, I just want all whatever the, this is going to go to the thing. And I think they would have, it would have been successful. I don't know if someone else is going to do it, but, but I think that's what, that's what was really missing was this extra, hey, do you want to do this? I just wanted it to just be normal Amazon, set a preference for a nonprofit that it goes to and call it a day. Kind of like a, a an upsell or like just it was a user thing of just making it, was it constantly, easy. It was constantly throwing me this window and I just didn't want to, I didn't want the window. Like I just wanted it to be, you know, uh, and I really kind of felt like Amazon was doing it to look good and not really doing it to actually send money to nonprofits because they could constantly ask you, hey, do you want to do this thing that we're doing that's great for the world rather than like, just let me set it and forget it. Like, let me just set something. I want all my money to go to this, all the extras to go to this nonprofit. And I I just felt like I was being manipulated. Bill? Yeah, I, I just want to jump onto that because friction, the idea of of making people who want who you want to do something, making it difficult for them, I think is one of the primary things that I fight every day in my business practices. So as we go through the general business topic, and since today is that day, I just want to say that's more and more on my radar, lower friction, lower friction, lower friction. And what Alex is articulating is exactly why I've stopped doing a lot of stuff. It's too difficult. There is there's different kinds of friction. So when you want someone just to click something, then you want to lower that friction to almost zero. If you're trying to build something that is meaningful, then you want to add friction. So, oh, that's so like, point. you know, you know you. so there's a lot of social networks. Some of the most successful social networks in China right now are adding a lot of friction. There's one that you have to like fill out like 60 pages of questions to even get into the community. And it's one of the most successful ones that you, <laughs> that are in China. So, so because, because once you get in there, then it's, then it's a really, um, it's a highly filtered system. And so, so being able to filter, for instance, adding some friction so you can filter clients, adding friction so you can filter, you know, um, you know, communities that it, it's not always you want to lower friction, but in something that should be a click through like this, it really needed to be you know, zero friction. I always thought they should have taken those little buttons. You know, Amazon made this button thing where you could like order new detergent by just having like stick it to the side of your, um, and then push a button and it'll just, it'll just send it to you. And that they, that failed. I think that they should have done that for political, you know, political, um, folks. So you just get one that, that donates to your favorite party, whatever that is. And when you're angry about the other party, you just push the button and it sends $5. To them. <laughs> just so like, I just, I'm just angry. I'm angry, 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 angry. Whatever it is. I think, I think that would have been funny to whatever, whichever direction that you wanted to send it, you could just send money, um, without having to think about who, who to donate to. 
So Chris, my question is, and if you can maybe put this in Discord, like a follow-up to this, I don't know in this moment, someone who offers the, a similar service. And um, my question is like the service of like, it is a platform that sells goods and then you can help by giving to a charity if that's what you're looking or, for or... And and one thing to note is that there is, uh, there are tools for both YouTube and Facebook and other, I mean, that might be where Liberty is getting to, um, that, that will let you do donations through a live stream or through an event. Yeah. So if you can just give us a little bit more context because of, well, the end goal obviously is to, to donate to the organizations that you work with, but the, the how in the, in this chain of that process would be helpful. So we could direct because instantly I was thinking, well, who else might just to help with your research, who else might want to kind of either pick up where Amazon smile left off or provide something similar to help along the way. So if you can just provide some more context in discord that can help us help you. Next question. Paul Wallace is up next from Austin, Texas. What are some effective, well-designed Chrome tab handling apps that would handle cross-platform tab management on Mac, PC, Linux, Android, and iOS? Has to sync across all platforms and import to other browsers. Alex? Chrome does this really well. <laughs> like I would, the import-export, you're just making it way more complicated than it has to be. You really have to choose what you're going to do for, for the most part on your browser. Jumping from browser to browser to browser and expecting all of them to, you'll spend more time managing your tabs than you will browsing. You know, so I, I don't think that there's, I mean, maybe Jason knows of something that's going to be seamless, but I've never seen anything particularly seamless that I, I've tried it and I just finally gave up and was just like, that's not, like I just spend most of my time in one browser or another and they live in two different worlds and Every time I tried to mesh them, it just turned into chaos. Jason? Nothing syncs well between browsers, just straight away. So I'll answer the real question that can be answered here. Tree-style tab works really well for this. It will allow you to color code um, your tabs on the side. It's Firefox. I believe they have a version for Chrome, too, but I could be wrong about that. It's an excellent plug-in. Take a look. Next question. Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York says, Morning, guys. Does ProPresenter 7 operate better on a Mac or PC? And which one would you recommend? Alex? I have not heard any reports of either one of them run running better or worse on the other platform. So they, they seem to manage their code very, very tightly. Um, it's a really well-run company and a really well-run, well um, you know, the software has generally every time we've used it i don't use it every day we used to use it all the time for key fill output because <laughs> you know, it was the one thing that a long time ago that could do that uh, relatively inexpensively and so uh but it it always just ran the way we expected it to um and 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 we've used it on both platforms uh, successfully noah my house of worship uses ProPresenter every week um so when the silicon transition happened for m1 max there's a little hiccup there for, you know, a few weeks. But after that, it's been super solid on a Mac. Next question. Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida says, thoughts on the pro intercom peer-to-peer -peer wireless intercom system. Is Unity still preferred? And he's got a link there to check it out. Go ahead, Alex. I haven't used this one, but, it, you know, the thing that it, the advantage looking at its website that it has over Unity is, of course, all the hardware. So Unity is not really, they haven't really invested in hardware and they don't, have a, even a lot of partners that do a lot of hardware. So you have to kind of figure out how you're going to tie that back in to make that work. We do use it. We use Unity, for instance, in conjunction with things like um, uh, uh, 
um, my brain, my brain, um, Clearcom. So we will tie that unity back into Clearcom to make that actually work. So it, it's definitely a uh, doable thing, um, but this is a this really looks more like a you know uh, would be more like a competing with Hollyland and other things like that as far as uh, the price and performance. I the, the 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 tricky part is to really see what is it actually doing. Is it you know how is it connecting to you know, all those other things. What are the limitations? Like how many channels? Is it all PL? Are there directs? Are there, you know, is there really a matrix? It looks like looking at it, it's really just some fairly basic stations that that do what they need to do, which is not bad, just something that, that we'd have to check. And, and you want to look at what kind of performance does it do it, at scale? What kind of performance does it do in specific rooms? If there's a, if there's a lot of um, congestion, all those things are things that you want to look at here. Um, it looks, they look like they're well-built, but without testing them, we wouldn't know. Next question. Chris Widener, Lafayette, Indiana. Could we do a deep dive on Boston Dynamics uh, behind the scenes on how they filmed the robot video from last week? And it's at a location he's given us here for a YouTube video. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, to quickly describe it, um, uh, they, they did a sequence of videos where a robot is assisting somebody. The one I'm referring to right now, uh, the gentleman's on a scaffolding and the Boston Dynamics robot is down below doing a lot of very intricate moves, including tossing uh, uh, gear up to the, uh, the the gentleman on the scaffolding and impressively doing a triple Lindy uh, backwards somersault to dismount from the box that uh, used to get off the thing. So um, what what I'm seeing is I'm not seeing any chicanery here. I think this is legit. I think it's really a real video. It's not CGI. Um, as Alex has said before, the physics seem very, very convincing. And um, I, I think what they've done is they've just spent a lot of time programming each of these individual moves into the robot and then putting them together. Um, they have the advantage of spending weeks, maybe months, to get every single one of those little sequences uh, planned out with the, uh, the robot. Alex? And it may be an entire sequence that's done on its own. That they just you know, shoot it over and over and over again. You'll finally get it to work. So, but yeah, I, I think that it is a, um, it's, Pre, completely pre-programmed. I think the mistake you make is to think that it's actually thinking. It's just, it has got a system that keeps it, you know, it, it knows how to stay uh, balanced. It can do those motions and it has to, you know, you have to keep on asking it to do those things. But I'm sure that an immense amount of time pre-programming it and then just scripting what the human had to say to get it to do the thing is all that, all that really happened there. So we don't want to undersell it. It's definitely real. Um, you know, Boston Dynamics is being used in a lot of things. It is but we don't want to oversell it like it actually made those decisions. And Noah? It'd be interesting when we, one day when we have the bot Olympics. And it's interesting to also follow Tesla and what they're doing with their bot because they're doing the other approach of trying to have a general approach instead of like specific coding. So we'll see what happens. Next question. Next one comes to us from Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida. And Jeff says, has anyone tried the center cam webcam? He's got a link there. Nice idea to make better eye contact. And he's curious about the quality. Alex, I have one. Um, I don't. I don't know if I can pull it out right now, but I, I I did buy one and I tested it, and it works great for eye contact. It just doesn't work great for video quality. <laughs> so so it's, you know, if you're used to webcams, it's it's okay. You know, um, the you're better off if you if you really are sold on that. Um, uh, one of the things we're about to start testing with the links is I believe the links can be hung upside down, and you sort of tell it that it's upside down. Um, we're going to test this this week for the Michael Krasny show, and but if you hang it upside down. 
um, you can then have a PTZ that sits at the end of a of a mount, and then you have all the power and the a higher quality cam and everything else. But I think you're better off finding a higher quality webcam and just doing what they're doing. Uh, I you know throwing that into your backpack and having eye contact I think makes sense. It's just that the the I didn't find that the web cam capabilities were worth uh, the eye contact. Next question. Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia is up with this. Liberty White, please explain the success of your tutorial 30 social media post with Canva and AI going viral and giving you numbers through the roof. What happened? So a little backstory on this. So I was in after hours, maybe like two weeks ago, just sharing, you know, sometimes you just need to get out of your head when it comes to uh, a project and just wanting to redo the content that I share on Instagram. And so I think it was Brian and Brandon, and I think even Jeff, um, a bunch of people gave just feedback. And I was sharing that I want to do more tech tips um, online. And I have an account that is dedicated to just because some people, they just want the tips and that's it. And then the other one being more so life as an entrepreneur, mom, et cetera. Um, so they gave me some really good feedback. And so on Thursday, I shared a video of like Canva AI and just walking through. It was just 90 seconds. And on IG, and actually, let me see if this will pop up. Okay, great. So um, we've talked about this a lot in some second hours, but it really came down to like the expertise of the Canva and knowing how to like use it and help businesses. Like Alex said earlier for Bo, serving, just come out and serve. So Canva has magic, right? And you're able to connect the two and create like 30 posts in like five minutes, because once you, you put it in Canva, right, then it will spit it out. You connect the two to an Excel spreadsheet and use batch bulk create and it spits it out. So just knowing that information and knowing the people that follow, um, follow me there. So the expertise, the timing and the importance of timing of knowing when your audience is online. And so I knew like Thursday is one of those peak days for the people who follow me. I don't have that many followers on Instagram. Um, so just knowing that they are getting into their weekend. So I needed to put something out because part-time entrepreneurs or after five entrepreneurs, usually the weekend is when they're really hustling. So this information would be really great for them at that time. And then value, valuable content. So all putting all of those together garnered me 75K on IG. And then on LinkedIn, I went live and that was 20,000 people. So all together in less than 48 hours, putting that together, like people really needed that information. We talk about that stuff all the time. So it's normal for us, but the average person just showing them how they can use AI was just like, it was mind blowing for them. So thanks. Next question. Next one comes from Douglas Carmichael. And Douglas says, for those that use both SSDs and HDDs in their workflow, so SSD drives and hard drive mechanicals in their workflow, what data do you typically store on a hard drive system versus an SSD? Mitchell? Um, if it's an online edit with 4K uh, content, it's definitely going to be online with an SSD because of the speed um, and uh, the uh, uh, the ability of it to output the uh, a 4K stream real easily, and as a bit bucket or a place to uh, uh, to store the file after it's done, I'll go to a spinning hard drive uh, for that. Also, my clients uh, want me to air gap my computer, so I have to get the 
materials to them, and I don't send them SSDs because I'll never see that drive again. So they get a hard disk drive that they can transfer those files from anytime they want to. Storage for HDD, uh, online for SSD. Noah? Yeah, very similar here. I, I start with the backup process. Like, so as soon as we shoot something, it has to go in two places before we leave set, right? And usually those two things are going to two different <clears throat> destinations. So I'll have myself and another crew member take home uh, the footage. And um, that way, uh, we're, we're splitting up the royal family, so to speak. That way, you know, if somebody gets in a car accident, we still have that footage. Uh, secondly, when we're editing, it's usually off of a SSD, right? So we have that immediate fast use. And then long-term storage, I have a Synology drive with um, 12 different drives sitting about two feet from me that we use for long-term storage. Breaking up the royal family. Guy? Yeah, it depends on what you want to do with it. Uh, so we use a lot of uh, spinning disks still. Uh, I have uh, a 24 and a 32 that look like this. Uh, this is Joel in our studio. We use a couple of these uh, GTEC uh, 8 bays, and you can configure these to be uh, SSD. or So you can pull out spinning disks, and you can put, like, we have Atomist drives that we put in instead of RED or CFAST modules. So we'll raid six of the spinning disks together, and then we'll use the other modules like this SSD here to uh, use for the productions. And so you can easily swap them in and out, but still keep your raid. So we use we use a variety of each. It just depends on the situation, but we try to avoid a uh, single spinning disk. Uh, having multiple spinning disks uh, raided together makes them really fast. I mean, we're getting 600 to 1200 megabit, megabytes per second. So it's super fast storage. And Alex. Yeah, I think it depends on how much storage you need. Uh, I think that the spinning makes sense on raids when you need a lot of storage. Um, I'm using mostly, uh, I work off of um, some version of this. This is an Express uh, 4M2 and it's got MVME in it. And so uh, it starts with SSDs at the, at the, when we capture it, um, it gets to MVME to be processed. And these, these little guys can get up to, I think, 32 terabytes. Um, and they're running about t over 2,000, two gigs a second. Um, and, uh, so, so we use those, I use internal when it's smaller. So it's, I have not enough internal on my, on my poor little Mac studio. So I use smaller projects, one terabyte projects on my, because it's still twice as fast as that external. Um, and then, uh, storage. So our dark storage goes to, uh, H hard drives. <laughs> so, uh, we copy it to two different raw drives. We don't even bother with the cases. We just put them into the, into what we call toasters, little disc toasters. And we copy it to two different ones. We give them, we, scan them so that we have their data the, the the database of the files that are in them put a put a put something on and put them in a case and put them on you know in a, in a shelf that way you search the scans when you want to find something you go oh i'm looking for this and we can usually find some anything that's in that storage in 15 minutes you know so it's it, it is uh it's real and you know we very rarely have lost the spinning drives um but uh but we still make two of them for all of the projects that we work on next question Noah Sargent, Fullerton, California, says, I've used a 43-inch 4K TV as my main monitor for a little over two years. I'm considering a 55-inch 8K TV to replace it for around 60% more pixel density. Any suggestions for setup? Alex? Uh, what are you driving it with, Noah? Right now, it's the uh, M1 Max Studio, and uh, it does only have a 4K out, the newest M2 allows to do 8K, but I don't think I necessarily need the resolution, but the pixel density is interesting. So I can, you know, see multiple screens in my calendar and all that at the same time. So, you, yeah, it would be interesting to, yeah, because that would be, and I think that you can drive out of the Mac Pro, you will drive an 8K, but I think only through the Blackmagic 
um, output. Um, I think, I believe. So I think it's a Thunderbolt to black magic and then you can output it from there. I believe it might do 8K, maybe 6K. Um, anyway, so that's, you know, so the 8K is the, the hard part is driving the, the monitor, <laughs> you, know, like it's, it's, you know, that's the, that's the real challenge uh, with the, with the higher, higher resolution ones right now. Mitchell? I think the TV manufacturers are scamming us with 8K. I just don't think they're, they're very practical. Uh, perhaps there's some unusual usage and I think, no, it would probably be able to take advantage of it. But the average person, I don't think, uh, can benefit from 8K. I can barely get 4K source material coming to my TV from DirecTV and even on Apple TV. Right. Noah? Well, what I've noticed is when I was doing the research on it, the 8K TVs that I saw all had specs and parameters that were above and beyond what 4K could do, not just from a pixel um, perspective, right, um, you know, the lines by lines, but more so of the color rendering and the processing and all the latest, greatest things are coming in those 8K forms. And Alex? Yeah, I, I, the only thing I'll say is that, you know, we heard that with 4K as well. Like, why would you need 4K? <laughs> and, it, and it turned out that 4K was pretty, pretty useful. Uh, I, I will say as someone who's who's gotten to watch a lot of uh, 8K 120 frame per second HDR, uh, it is like looking into a window. Like, that's the thing that happens is that the I think by itself at 30 frames a second, I think 8K is fine or 24 or even 60 is pretty good. But when you go to high frame rate, at a high resolution with high dynamic range, you it is a different experience. Literally, it will if it ever if it ever turns the corner. I don't know if it will. Um, it will change the way we make films because you you literally get if it fills your frame like if you can't see the edges of the of the screen, and you move the camera, you get sick. Like because your brain is no longer your inner your your you have an inner ear problem at about ninety six frames a second. Um, you start having an inner ear problem where you're you suddenly get disoriented or a lot of people get disoriented when you go to that. So that's why, for instance, 48 probably makes sense for Avatar. Um, I think, I personally think that Avatar, the 48, 24 thing is James Cameron just slowly weaning us away from 24. <laughs> so, so I think that he's, he's just showing you how, how bad 24 looks when you could have 48. So, so um, anyway, uh, but, um, but I, I did think like, well, what if it was 96 or 120? And I think that he'd have to change the way he shot the film. And I think that that's, because it just, it changes the way you interact. So I think that the high frame rate makes sense. And, and when you have that high resolution, you just no longer see any pixelation, any pixels at all. You just see a window. And so I, I do think that that's, that's compelling. Bill, real quick. All valid things. For me, uh, the fact that I have from a long time in my production career of making video, I always wanted a one-to-one -one mode where I could literally put the monitor in something where I could see every pixel the way that it was. For 8K shooters, if you don't have an 8K monitor, you can't go into one-to-one -one and see if the anomaly is caused by scaling or whether it's actual signal problems. And Alex. And the last thing I'll say, Noah, is if you're going to split those screens, so you take 4K and split them using one of the split. The splitters are a little expensive. The 8K60 splitters are like 1200 bucks. But you can do four 4K inputs. Now, that is compelling to me. <laughs> like that, that is like having four 4K images on it. But I would probably go for the, a larger screen to do that. But that, that could be really, yeah, really interesting. Next question. Uh, Kajedi Fiji, it looks like in Gritsvold, Tromso, Norway, says, I've recently heard a rumor that you can use the Blackmagic gyro metadata to feed it into Unreal Engine 5 for real-time tracking of your 3D camera. Has anyone tested this? Alex? I don't think anybody's tested it, and I don't think any 
I don't even know what it is. <laughs> so, so we don't say Where, we don't get stumped very often. Where's but I, Nick? <laughs> I have not seen this. The, I have not seen uh, the metadata reported on uh, from from the Black Magic cameras. <laughs> Noah, I've seen a demo from a third party sensor that you put on top, like the horseshoe mount, and that tracks it and allows you to take it in post and use that data. But I didn't realize there might have been a gyro in the yeah. Black Magic camera, and I would love to see this technology. If that's the case, that would be super cool. Next question. Andy Kokendorfer is back from Vieira, Florida and said, thoughts on this, the NVIDIA Broadcast 1.4 adds eye contact and vignette effects with virtual background enhancements. NVIDIA Broadcast 1.4 adds eye contact and vignette effects with virtual background enhancements. And he's got a link there to an NVIDIA site. Jason. Okay. Eye contact works really well until it messes up, and then it is the weirdest thing you have ever seen in your life. Um, as far as the vignette, eh, yeah, we'll see. And Alex? Yeah, to underline what Jason said, if it screws up once for half a second, it will weird somebody out for the rest of the, the time they're looking at it. And so... I haven't tested it, but all I looked at is like, wow, that looks really cool until it flickers, like until a person looks away a little bit or doesn't, it doesn't get quite right. And as soon as it happens, the person on the other side is just going to be staring at your eyes, waiting for it to do it again. And they won't be listening to you anymore. And that's the problem with all of this stuff is the one it's not really just right. It, it is, in my opinion, virtual backgrounds and all these enhancements, and everything else are great when they are absolutely seamless. 100% of the time. If they're seamless, 99% of the time, don't use them. Next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next. He says, Ticketmaster has received a lot of criticism for the use of dynamic, or as they call it, demand-based pricing for in-demand events. Could you see affordability and accessibility helping to drive digital first forward in the event market? Alex? Yeah. You know, the, the when I was in the music industry, we really talked, I used to work for Sony Music, and we talked about how much money we were making on CDs and how eventually that was going to create an environment where the users, the listeners, didn't care about us and looked at us as like the enemy. And um, because we were charging so much, a, a, a printed CD with the case was 44 cents, a, 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 um, 44 cents each. And the cassette was uh, 22 cents or 21 cents each uh, coming out of the, out of the factory. Um, and so that's for the numbers. And people say, well, you have to pay for the artist and everything else. We have to pay the artist for the cassette too. You know, like, so there's 20 cents. So the reality is there was 23 cents different between the two. Um, and there should have been 23 cents or a dollar more between the two. But that's not what happened. They, they charged $16 or $18 um, a pop because they could, you know, because they, they, they could do that. And what it created was an environment where when Napster came out, no one felt bad about it because they had been paying these the, this incredibly and everyone knew that they were getting you know they were really getting the shorthand of of this process and so uh so they didn't want to um uh you know no one felt bad when napster came out and i think that the issue is there's an incredible amount of pressure for ticketmaster um to you know no one you know the, the artists are upset about using Ticketmaster, the users are upset about Ticketmaster, and that creates a very um, unstable environment. <laughs> you know, so uh, you know for for Ticketmaster, I don't. They can they so far have been able to buy every company that could possibly destabilize them, um, but but th that may not occur forever. Bill, 
Yeah, I'm actively hostile toward the ticketing industry based on a couple of circumstances. I, I don't think they understand. I, you know, they're still making a ton of money and there's always going to be people who pay ridiculous amounts. But I remember decades ago, I'd gotten a particularly fancy credit card and they had a system to get tickets to show you could have a hard time getting. So I bought, a, uh, bought one seat to go over to California back when I lived in Arizona and see a show with a band who was up and coming. And uh, the ticket cost me a good little bit. I got there. I was I had pretty poor seats. I mean, I was in the second tier balcony on the corner. I was still happy to get in. But I noticed that the whole front third of the theater had been roped off and there was nobody in front. And five minutes before they show, they let in all the even fancier people who got all those primary seats. And it was so galling to think that even in those kind of circumstances, they would treat me so badly as a ticket want to purchaser that I think that is the last concert I have gone to in person. And that was 15 years ago. Uh, maybe they don't want me, but I spent a youth with getting, you know, decent tickets through the open system to, you know, Pink Floyd and Jethro Tull and all these big acts that were touring that made me a fan for life. And I think they are destroying the live uh, industry with this awful, awful, awful ticketing dynamic. All right. Well, we are at the top of the hour on the moment. Way to go, producers and panelists, as we make our transition into our conversation around sales and it being we're still at the top of the top of 2023 and our great panel that has not only from the freelancers and contracted, but actually running a business. And what we're going to get dive into is how do you actually get customers? Um, hopefully we'll get some stories and some feedback on some very tactical and practical ways that you do that. And then maybe some like secret keys to helping you maintain those relationships as well, because it's one thing to actually prospect and to go to events. And you always hear that with networking and be seen and put out all this, this content, but what what's actually working, what's actually worked for you. And definitely producers, feel free to go ahead and submit your questions that you have around sales, around getting clients, around keeping clients. Um, I think I've shared this story in the past of just last quarter, um, looking towards 2023, I was working with a consultant because you know, when you want to go to that that next level, you oftentimes need outside expertise and just putting some systems in place that would help. Um, not any fancy CRMs. There are things like Salesforce out there, but even if it's just a spreadsheet and making sure that you're very clear on the kind of customers or the kind of work that you're that you're looking to to get, and then actually mapping out what are the tools that your client needs to see or these prospects need to see. Um, and then also with that, then making sure that the discipline <laughs> that it takes to reach out and follow up, because sometimes it can be demoralizing, right, Alex? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I will say that I'm going to talk about sales from a non-salesperson. Like I don't, I'm not, I will tell, I'm not the person that can call. I can't do cold calls. I can't call people and just try to drum up business. It's just not really my, my thing. Um, I tend to think in very long curves. So a lot of times a client that ends up being a client, um, the, the, there's two things that I, that I tend to do. A client that ends up being a client oftentimes for me might take six to 12 months to mature. You know, like literally I'm 
working with them on other things. Um, I think the mistake a lot of people make is they go, well, if someone calls for advice, if I don't know if I'm going to get paid, I'm not going to give them the advice or I'm not going to give them the time of day because they're not paying me for this hour that I'm spending with them. And I take the exact opposite approach, which is that I'm like, call anytime. If you got an idea, you know, if you're thinking about something and you're trying to figure something out, just call. It's fine. I'm, I, I, can get, I can get you half an hour or an hour to talk about it. And I spend a lot of time on the phone with, with clients talking about things that they, or potential clients, not even clients, just folks that are now obviously if, if, you know, I, I, you know, have you yeah. always been like that? Like that yeah. has just always, I'm just okay, interested. Just... <laughs> I'm just interested in what you're doing. Like it, it has very little to do with, I, 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 I'm going to say that I didn't go to any classes and no one taught me anything. This is just my way of being, which is that I'm just kind of interested in things. What I find is that when people call me, whatever they're trying to fix, everyone's trying to fix, like a lot of people are trying to fix that problem. And so them uh, calling me and talking to me about it has me thinking about, oh, I, you know, I, I'm thinking about solutions for that. It may not be them. It may not be them right now. But that 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 gets my 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 juices turning about thinking about what the industry needs. And it, it lets me push up against things. It, let, it lets me think, you know, and, and again, they'll have conversations. I talked about it in the past. I've had people have a conversation about something. And I start working on it. I'm like, oh, that's good. I, I, I think that's going to be somewhere in the future. And I start working on it. And I've started working on things two years before they before they became a product. And I don't wait for people to, I also don't wait for people to, um, I don't wait for clients to ask me for something. A lot of people say, well, clients aren't asking for that. Well, I never wait for that. <laughs> like, I never wait for that. I'm, I'm trying to create things that inspire them. So if I'm doing something that's cool and, you know, putting something together, I'll send them a link going, hey, check this out. Or even sometimes it's not even me doing it. It's someone else is doing it. And I just send them a lot. I just send emails to friends. You'll, you'll see that I'm excited about something because suddenly all the people that I've worked with or we've partnered with in the past or whatever start getting a whole bunch of text or emails depending on what I, how, how they normally interact. You have to know how your client, how your partners want to get messages like that. And so you send them, you, you, you send them those things like, check this out, check this out, check this out. And sometimes it's, it's me showing them like this is possible or this is interesting or this is and it's again it's in service of them just understanding what's actually happening or thinking about those things and those are and and then you'd be surprised at how often that comes back with hey what are you what are you doing in that area you know like how are you you know making that work and so then you start talking to folks about it if something gets closer to the surface then i start doing tests and sending specific tests about it but a lot of times I'm, I'm kind of working through those, those ideas um, uh, with them or on my own ideas that I think are going to work. Um, a lot of the things that we do, you know, I'm thinking about what that, that does. Like I, you know, a lot of the reason, you know, there's many reasons that office hours got started, but one of them was I didn't really understand Zoom very well. <laughs> like I was like, when we started it, I was like, I, this is a new platform for me and, and I'm about to do a bunch of products with it and I got to figure out how to turn it on, how to run it and how to make it work. And so that was part of the many th reasons that I started office hours. And then I was able to then show people office hours, like, check this out. This is what's possible. We can have discussions. We can do these things. It can look better than what you're used to and all those other things. And so, so that became useful, you know, um, in that area. But, but I think that that's, you know, that's a big piece of how I, how I work is, and then the other thing that happens a lot is that couple things that in pixel core specifically we really looked at and again i tend to talk about pixel core mostly just because it's past <laughs> you know it's the past i can talk about what we did is when i say we did this I, I i keep my own i know work out of it just because it's that's what i'm doing now but but in pixel core what we did is we viewed every interaction with the client as sales. We didn't do sales. I didn't even have a website that said what we did. Like literally until the last year after 15 years, I didn't have a website that even said what we do as far as production goes. Um, uh, the Everything was all, you know, under, it was kind of the, 
someone at Netflix called us the, you know, the CIA of live streaming. Like you'd call and someone would just start responding to you and, and, and build things out. But there was no promotion at all. Um, it was all word of mouth. It was all there. But what we did do is we viewed every interaction with a client as, a, as part of our sales. You know, so how they get an email back what the invoices look like. There was a lot of discussion, like I won't send out invoice. I, in, in Pixelcore, I wouldn't send out invoices from like uh, QuickBooks. <laughs> you know, like, like it was designed, you know, or it was designed to look the way we wanted it to look. Sometimes it was really low key. Like, so it was just all text and not because that's what we wanted to be like. We're not, but sometimes we were sending out, you know, uh, keynote docs and sometimes we were sending out, you know, depending on what it, what it, what it needed to be. But we, we, every interaction, and that's why not many people got to talk to the clients. Like we, we definitely did not put, if it was a big client, most of our clients were Fortune 100, most, actually 95% of my work was Fortune 10. There were like three people in the office that were allowed to talk to the client. <laughs> you know, like, because not, mostly because we wanted to maintain the narrative and we wanted to make sure that they were getting the most professional inter interaction possible you know, for what they were doing, it was from the most knowledgeable people. And they, they always got that kind of interaction there. And this kind of cool, calm, you know, interaction between, you know, to the, to the client was really always the goal, you know, as we, as we move through that. And so, so the, uh, so I think that that's really important when we get on set, it's still part of, again, when you talk about all things are sales, uh, our pro, our, our kit, the reason we, we owned gear, and I got really upset if any of it got scratched. And people never understood that in the warehouse. Like, why does it matter that nothing's scratched and nothing looks beat up and everything else? And I was like, that's part of our sales. <laughs> like, we, we, we always, when you went to the backstage, everyone would talk about it. The Pixel Core stuff looked, you know, it all looked nice and shiny because everyone else was renting gear. And I knew that. I knew that everybody else was renting gear. It all looks like it fell off the back of a truck. And you'd walk to this one 20 foot by 20 foot square and everything was pristine. You know, and all the cables were where they needed, and they were nice, and and the 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 lights were thought out, and everything else, and that all make that 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 makes a difference when when some because what happens is your client is giving tours to other other partners and clients and everything else, and you know, so like for instance, we were doing one client, another client that's actually bigger than theirs, they're showing off their production, and they walk back there, that client became a client, <laughs> you know, so they, they saw it, they saw they saw our kit compared to everybody else's kit, and we stuck out. We also required all of our people to. Um, you know, dress up, you know, so you couldn't show up in a production for us in a t-shirt, you know, and, and generally we would tell you basically what you needed to wear and we would send people home if they weren't wearing that. Um, and for a long time we had Pixcore shirts and we kind of expect you to wear the Pixcore shirts, <laughs> you know, like, you know, and, and, um, you know, when you were back there and, and that way it also helped us identify, it helps the client identify who it is. Um, you know, all those things were, you know, part of that, part of that process. But like, for instance, we did a job at the White House and I required everyone to wear suits. And I didn't think that was that big of a deal. We're at the White House, but evidently that is not normal. <laughs> like everyone just kind of comes in as production people with ripped up jeans and t-shirts into the White House. And, and we got fit, we finished the show and the person, the person there said, uh, I just got to tell you, this is the best, uh, this is the best team that's ever worked in the White House in the last, or has worked in the White House in the last 29 years. And I was like, who was, who was here 29 years ago? Like, like I was like, like, who are these guys? And, 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 and he said, oh, I've only been here 29 years. <laughs> so, so it was like, this is the best one I've ever seen. You know, and part of it was, it was that it was a clean kit. It was well designed. Everyone was in suits. Everyone was respectful. Everyone, you know, did all those things. But that is, and, and when that person told me that, and then told my client that, <laughs> 
a lot more work. <laughs> you know, so, so um, you know, because, you know, and, and so you get kind of seen as this high bar. And so, so that's the kind of thing it's, it's, I would say that a lot of it is what I would call basic ball handling, how you interact with the client, having the client feel, have confidence, having the client, and then they recommend you to people all the time. If they know, if they feel secure, you know, we did a lot of work for Google, but the, the thing that really helped us with Google was we didn't fail. Like when we, you know, or we very, 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 very rarely had a problem in our, in our shows it gave Google the confidence to sit there and introduce us to all their partners. <laughs> so they would just be like, you know, here, this is, I mean, here's AMC, here's, uh, you know, whatever, every broadcaster, every A-level celebrity, every politician, Google had the confidence. And that doesn't mean your show turned out. It means that the whole pipeline felt like it was working. You know, that they like didn't the client feel experience, stressed. When, they feel, like when a client feels stressed at an event, then they're like, oh, I don't want to do that again. Like if anyone knew what it took to do a live event, they wouldn't do it. And so the so the key is you keep them shielded you know, from from the from the moving sharp edge. You know, no one wants to see how the sausage gets made. You know, and so you 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 know, and and so that's also why we controlled contact with the client because you know there's things that go wrong, and our job is to fix those things. You know, and and make those things work, and so and, and keep it as as clean and as smooth for the client as as you can. You can't always make that happen, but those are the kind of things. So I I'm not I'm a non sales salesperson which is that, you know, I just, but most of the stuff I bring in is pretty big budget, you know, I, I, because it's, but it's, um, but it takes a long time to mature and it takes just a lot of good ball handling skills. And those are, in my opinion, oftentimes harder. I always think of my last things, <laughs> always think of the, there's a, one of my favorite movies is called Joe versus the volcano. It's a very early Don, Tom Hanks um, film. And there's this opening scene and the opening scene, this guy keeps on yelling into the phone. He goes, I know you can get the job, but can you do the job? I know you can get the job. You know, I'm not arguing that with you. You know, you're like, but can you do the job? And uh, we say that all the time. <laughs> you know, and so, because it's not about, the sales is fine, but the worst thing to do is sell into something you can't do or you can't do well. And the client comes back just going, what, you know, like, you know, then you lose them forever. You know, it was, it was better not to have them at that point. Noah? Wow. Oh man, that's so many good nuggets in there. I'm super excited to uh, follow this. So uh, I first want to just compliment Alex. Obviously, um, if you've listened to Office Hours for any length of time, you'll know that he's um, the ultimate pioneer in our space and has done a lot of amazing things um, and has built up that reputation. And I think just the, the main takeaway from that for me would be like that reputation that you have um, supersedes your sales capability, right? And th that's more important than the way you sell or what, what have you, like the way your company's presented and the reputation that you get, the word of mouth that you get is going to be the biggest um, benefit to your company. And so um, for, for me, I'll speak on my personal experience and how I've developed over the years. So I, I came up as a technician. Um, I've also worked in Hollywood as assistant director, and I, I kind of found myself um, with entrepreneurial tendencies tendencies, right? Um, and I kind of fought myself a little bit for a while um, before I started my business and, and doing what I do now, um, because I, I didn't know if that was going to be me. And I re really didn't like vision, uh, think through the vision of what that would look like. Um, and so I was really intimidated by the sales process, right? And, and it was something I avoided, to be frank and honest. Um, and it was something that I just didn't spend the time of day um, until just before COVID and really during COVID, um, I started really studying up and, and learning from um, 
as many people as I could. And um, I think the the takeaway there is like the mindset and your approach to the sales process is super important as well. Uh, I know I've had some bad experiences with, you know, car dealerships and other places that just left a bad taste in my mouth for sales. Um, and I think generally sales gets a bad reputation because it's not always done very well, right? Um, and it could be very frustrating. And so um, another thing I wanted to say, like generally speaking, if you're winning every quote, you're probably not priced correctly, right? And if you're losing every quote, it's probably the same thing. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So, my company's corporate streams were a small um, streaming company that specializes in C-suite communication, right? So, having clarity around that sentence and your your value to the market, right? What you're providing your clients is super important. And that clarity should be um, echoed or even, like, regurgitated back at you throughout your whole sales process and everything that you do, right? And you just um, you have to also accept and, and realize that not everybody is a fit to your product, right? And so you don't need to make every sell. Um, and if you're going in with that expectation that I need this and I need this to happen, it's, it's not going to happen for you. Uh, a huge resource to me was Production Hub. That's where I currently do my, the most amount of advertisement, but I still um, am looking at other revenues. We're going to start Google Analytics and uh, Google Ads soon. Um, and again, I, I'm just sharing my personal experience. I don't see myself as a sales expert, but I wanted to offer, like from a small business perspective, what I've learned and what I've grown in. Um, I've mentioned this on the podcast several times, um, but Chris Doe from The Future is an incredible resource. Um, Impact Theory with Tom Bilyeu, another great resource. Um, my client management CRM software is 17 Hats, which I'm super impressed with and happy with so far. Um, but yeah, the, my bottom line is like you have to have clarity in everything you do, including the sales process. Those were some really good gems, Noah, because like what we saw was, you know, Alex Fortune 10 and then someone who has made that transition. Because I put a question in the chat, just even gauging like our freelancers, contractors, because at the end of the day, if you're getting paid, you are, you know, a business if you're doing the work for someone else and not being um, an employee inside of an organization. And I think that gives us a really good perspective on, well, you're at this side of things where, yes, you've gotten some referrals, but then also the need for, okay, building out that pipeline. And you said Production Hub has worked really well. And now, you know, what that could look like with getting into the ads, like digital ads uh, or paid ads, I should say, online. Bill? So I was thinking back, how how did I get off the ground in the early days. And for me, it comes down to this, and it'll be a little different. I'll address this at the end, and I'll do this really quickly. For me, in my life, reading led to doing. I had to figure out how to do things. And so reading led to doing. Doing led to writing about it. Writing led to understanding, because that was my process for breaking things down. Understanding led to sharing. Once I knew something, I could tell other people about it. And it was almost in every case, and this reflects back to what Alex said, sharing hard-won knowledge and expertise is what led to getting work. If people didn't know I could do something well, they would not hire me to do that for them. I think things are a little bit different in that um, most people get their education online through watching and, and things like that. But I think those key places in there, moving from information gathering to doing something, then once you start doing it, figuring out whether you are doing it well or whether you need to refine it to be able to do it better, that's the understanding stage. 
And once you understand something, not holding it close, but sharing it with others is what builds you the reputation that eventually says, okay, I will trust them with my gig. So that's been the arc for me. You said a really good point there, Bill, of just like the way that our society is consuming information and resources now and by putting your expertise out there and how that impacts and also helps them like this is the person that uh, that I want to work with, Alex. Yeah, and I think that that's also why, I mean, again, like the panel that we that we have here was designed so that people could share what they knew with other people. But that also, um, you know, I've, you know, for instance, as an example, I've hired I've hired Noah a couple of times, you know, for productions. How do I know him? The panel. <laughs> like, you know, like that, that's how I knew who, who, who he is and what he does and everything else that I hired him for something small. And then, and then, and then again, it's, it's people being account, being, um, uh, being reliable, being able to show up, having the stuff that they said they were going to do, doing all the things, being appropriate on set, all those things then, then start to build. So it's how do you get your foot in the door in that area? The other thing I wanted to say is that while I have a certain way of doing it, there are key weaknesses to what I have. And, and that is, and that's why you want a more heterogeneous mix than what I did on my own with Pixel Core because Pixel Core went under. And the reason it went under is because we suddenly had a huge drop in sales and I have no capacity to make that turn. <laughs> like, like, because I'm a long turn, like I can do turns. And what we were missing in that case was internet sales, salespeople. Like we had no salespeople. Like it, all we did, we just did, it was all production, you know? And so it was just pure muscle. It was just all we did was do the thing. And we were busy, really busy for a decade. And then Facebook changed its algorithm and suddenly everything shifted really, really fast and we didn't have anybody to handle it. So, you know, if I was going to say that I was, what I learned from that was that we needed to have some, you know, a better website. We needed to have a, um, uh, um, you know, salespeople you know, that were calling people and talking about it. All those things would have been um, advantageous to allow us to kind of control our destiny more. So, so I, I think I don't want to make it sound like that's the only way to do it because it, it had, it had some key you know, issues with it. And if I built up a company that size, again, I would definitely add those things back. I like how you just even framed that, Alex, because that really speaks to just having so many people share their processes so that our producers and those that are are watching will be able to take some nuggets from each of us to make it work for them. Because the reason I even mentioned, you know, the consulted is kind of like what you were saying from the Pixel Core perspective is I'm actually not a sales <laughs> salesperson. I just love the content creation process, the helping find solutions. Like I am that solutions. Per yep. I, I hate talking about money. Like I hate the billing. I hate the SOWs. I hate, I hate all the, all that stuff. I just want to get to the, like, okay, we're going to do the thing, you know? And so, you know, like we're going to do the thing. Once we get past the doing the thing, then I can just focus on doing the thing. And so I go through this process, it, you know, to me, it's like this, this uh, minefield that I have to go through to get them, someone to say, okay, we'll spend this kind of money. And then I stop thinking about that. And I just start focusing on let's, let's get, let's produce a great product. That's perfect. What you just said there is the doing the things. I love just getting to the solution. Let's, oh, let's mind map it. Let's figure it out. And this is what you need to put all of that together. So even in saying that, that's when if you have capacity to find someone who is, that's what they want to do. They they and, like to talk. To, and we talk a lot about SOWs. The one thing it takes us a long time to do is SOWs. Like it takes a very, it still takes me a long time to do SOW because when I do an SOW, I build your event. The whole design for the event is done for the SOW. Like I'm sitting there going, okay, we're going to have this, and these people are going to show up this time, and it's going to, and it takes a lot. And if you keep on, for a client, if they keep on changing what they are asking for, then that SOW keeps on getting delayed because I'm sitting there trying to make sure 
I don't like in a large corporate environment, you don't want to keep changing the price. <laughs> so, so you do everything you can to include everything they ask for um, and, then, and then hand it back to them so that you know that you can produce it in the budget that they had because they have to go get approval and then they have to come back. And if you add $1,000 or $2,000 at the end of the event, it may seem like a small amount of money and well, that's just what it costs. Um, most of the time, I will try to take a hit on my on my margin, you know, before I go to a client and ask them for more money, you know, like, because I just, I, I, and, and that made it, again, when we talk about friction, that makes it much lower friction for a large corporate client to manage. Entertainment clients want you to give them the lowest possible price and then add things on as they go. So they're different. It's a different culture. But if you're, if you're quoting for a large corporate client, they want the number to be the number. They really don't want you to change it. And the same thing that we say when we're talking about social and providing value and all and even attracting customers, people do business with who they know, like and trust. And so a lot of what has been shared is that very much so that like getting people to to know you, getting people to getting your clients to trust you so that they'll actually because that's what it is. You're taking you're coming in at intense moments. There's some sort of problem and problem being, okay. this event needs to be produced or this social media. This digital strategy needs to be executed to help them make money. So as much as you can show them, we will probably get into some tactics shortly when we get into some of your questions is like, how do you put yourself out there, present yourself in a way that will enable you to do that? Because like Alex said, I've been focused so long with some of my company, Chosen Media, but I also have got a studio with partners in that I don't talk a lot about. And people are always like, you have a production studio, like an actual physical space that we can go into in, in Decatur, Georgia. And like those things, you might not be thinking about it, but by not opening your mouth to talk about yourself, your business, your products, your services, if you don't talk about it, how will anyone, you know, how will anyone know? So, um, Let's go back to you, Noah. Yeah, thank you. I, I think for me, I absolutely was fearful and I didn't want to. I, I hated the sales process at first. And I think it was just because I didn't have any experience. I didn't realize what it could be and what with my past experience, like I described earlier, it was a bad experience. Right. And so over time, I realized that it was uh, a skill uh, something that I can learn and get better at, right, and and get more comfortable doing, and then I'll, over time realize that it was it's a people business, really, is what it comes down to, and relationships. And so, um, from you know a couple of years ago where I was just super fearful of it to today, I feel like it's a night and day difference, and I've come to actually love and enjoy the process of talking to people and figuring out what the need is and seeing if we can actually solve that problem. And so, um, I think that's something that comfortability wise will happen with with time for people. Bill? So in my radio days, I remember, particularly when I was a production director at a station, a pretty big station, it, it was the conflict between the creatives and the suits, right? Suits were in the sales department, the creatives were, in, were writing copy and doing spots and stuff like that. The fascinating thing, though, is what Liberty just said is really powerful. And she used the terms no like, and trust. The sales relationship is built on that. And that means like all relationships, it takes time and effort and grooming of the relationship to make sure that people can trust you. That is why while you're off doing your thing and being creative, having people who are dedicated to spending time maintaining those human relationships, and that is your sales department, 
is absolutely critical because you have your time invested in things that you do well. If you don't have a separate setup of people who spend their time and love maintaining those bonds of relationships with the client, it's always going to be iffy because you're going to get distracted on the big job and you're not going to do any client connections while you're figuring out the NDI topology of your network. You just can't do both at the same time. So true. Well, Bill, let's get into these questions. Okay. Diving in. The first one comes from Kenneth Jones in Seattle, Washington. In the sales negotiation process, how does one prove value when the objection is on price? Mm, Noah. I would start with the premise of the question. So for me, uh, the phrase prove value to me uh, doesn't sit quite well. So you know that old phrase like eyes, um, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? So ultimately, the person deciding whether they want to purchase from you is going to determine the value of that. So um, if I'm selling a, a company on something, right, I'm, I'm providing a service to them, it's going to be more valuable to somebody who has a greater return on their investment, right? It's, it's a better value to them opposed to like my grandma, like she doesn't need streaming service, right? So she doesn't see the value in that or the thousands of dollars that I might pitch to a company. So I would determine the value first and start with that. Um, there's also uh, a, a Chris Voss, uh, he has a book called The Art of Negotiating, um, and he talks about the yes and the pivot. So basically, um, yeah, we, we are expensive, but it's for a good reason. Like we can support your event instead of doing a thousand smaller events. We do a handful of larger events, right? So it's kind of reframing that question. Um, but ultimately, at least in the back of my mind, I, I know that if a client is deciding on budget as their primary um, decision factor, then we're probably not going to be working with them. Alex? Yeah. Uh, things that I say oftentimes, often in events, usually not to the point where I Someone's asking, by the time someone says prove the value, I usually just drop them. Like, I, I just drop the conversation. Like, we're not going to have this conversation. Like, I, I don't say it in the meeting, but I just stop. I, my, my responses become tight, and I don't really pay much attention to them anymore. And so um, uh, if they triple bid me, if they say we're going to do this in a triple bid, I won't, I won't bid. Like, I just, I'm just like, that's not the environment that I want to work in. Um, and I know people say, oh, you can't do it with big companies or governments or whatever. You can. <laughs> like, just so you know, you can, you can manipulate a triple bid. Uh, you know, so if they come to you and go, okay, we got to do a triple bid, but this is what I need you to say. Da, 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 da. That's how you, if you know you're in the inside, then, then you're fine. But if I get a raw triple bid, I'm just like, whatever. Um, the, uh, uh, so when people talk about it, what you need to do before that is start to set the seeds of um of of doubt in other people <laughs> what i mean by that is uh you know not not a specific other competitor but other things that people will say you know like well if people say that they can do if someone says that they can load in on the same day for this this project um the chances of you know, you know i'll say the chances of, of success are very low or the quality will be very low, um, but you can do that. <laughs> like just, just letting you know that, that that can happen. But just remember that you know the most expensive part of every live event is a failure. You know, and and so you know, and the second most expensive part is damaging your brand by having something that doesn't look very good. You know, and and doesn't work very well. And you know, we're we're you know, oftentimes we're dealing with big personalities, and so you know, having them go back and say this wasn't a great experience. These are all things that that are problematic. <laughs> you know, and so you say those kinds of things, and you. You're saying those things in those meetings, and and it is true. Like everything you're saying is true, but it also sets up when people say, "Oh, they can just do it." You may not get that bid, but when that project, many people in our industry, I would say ninety percent of our our 
very optimistic about what they're capable of and generally produce undervalued product. You know, like so, so you're in an environment where if you're producing a high quality product, 90% of the people around you are probably not producing a high quality product. They're probably doing something that's a little schlocky. And if you point that out and you point the client towards knowing what the schlocky is and knowing why it's there, you may not get the first bid, but they may come back to you after they, they look at it and it's like a little dark or it's a little low res or the, the graphics are a little schlocky or it was real stressful to put together the event. You know, all those things. You're setting, you're setting whoever gets that bid up for a very, the bar that you can match and the bar that they might not be able to. Bill? You think it's something for big quali- uh, companies, but I think it's something for every company, which is the process of qualifying the client, understanding what your client's looking for and whether or not they are going to be reasonable in all aspects. I've run across clients who are the traditional grinders. All they care about is winning on the price. And if you say number X, they want to get you to 50% of X or they won't feel you know good and they'll resent it from then on. Those people are toxic and you have to work out that. But I've also seen circumstances, you know, I, want, I wondered why one of my associates, um, a distant relative, was telling me the story once of working for a huge wireless company when wireless was coming out. And they had been with them for a long time and they actually fired the client. And I was saying, I, I'd never heard of this concept before. They said, no, the, the new team at this particular large company is purely looking for this metric and they're going to start to be grinders and we don't want to go there. So they dumped a multi-million dollar client because of that. They realized the corporate culture was changing and it was going to become a toxic relationship and they got out of it before it became that. Um, Qualifying the client becomes important in all cases, and it's an ongoing thing. That's a great point. And just even Noah kind of alluded to this before, too, of like if they're coming at you price only now, all this information, know where you are in your business development process. So if you're just starting and you're trying to build, um, build your clientele, you know, take take this through a a certain lens, but if they are only looking at price, that's going to be the metric going forward. Like that, if you, because you want a long-term, you're looking at a relationship where you are working with someone possibly on projects for years to come. And if they're only looking at price, like once you, your price goes too high, or even if they come back to you because there could be competition. So just like those things to really think about as you're going through, as you're going through the process. Next. Oh, and you know what? Sorry to even just come back to answer the question as well as like if it if you do decide to move forward, this is where you show them, you know, your case studies or samples of your work and talking them through that process so that you're showing the value that they will actually get. Next question. Eduardo Augustine's up next from Panama. Uh, he says, been working on doing the work for free and at a very low cost. How to move the needle and get real paying clients? The million dollar question, Noah. Liberty kind of answered it a little bit in the last, um, you know, moments there. But I'll say, uh, first off, doing free work uh, should not be looked down upon. Like you want to cut your teeth and get as much experience as you can, do as many things as you can until that you start to price yourself out of that class, so to speak, right? So you have such a vast portfolio and you have done, you know, dozens of projects or what have you until those projects can turn into paid projects. And so once you've done enough work, like you have that fun- fundamental baseline, then you can start, you know, 
um, leveling up in that sense. And so uh, another thing is you never want to stop learning. You never want to stop growing. Even when you get those first paid clients, um, you know, want, you want to keep iterating and keep making things better. But at the end of the day, you need to find a company that's going to um, value your services. Alex? A lot of times you want to try to find a job at a location, you know, a lot of people who don't haven't done a lot of production immediately want to build their own business and do it. And you want to think about whether you want to do that or not, because you're putting yourself at, at risk. You know, a lot of times it's better to work at another company to learn how it all works, to end up showing up at big events, to end up showing up, be a small part of a big pipe so that you understand what those things are and you understand how they all fit in. Um, the, if you're not going to do that, you need another you need another source of income while you figure this out to take on what Noah's talking about, which is the first live streams that we did were all free. You know, like we were doing stuff for nonprofits, doing stuff for creators, doing stuff. And when we started, Ustream was like the thing. And we were doing Ustream streams for folk, anybody that we knew, and we were trying to figure it out. And then we got paid a little bit of money for it. And then we got paid more money for it. And And what happened was we just kept on doing a good job. Now, in concentration, which is the first part of every pro- – well, the, the, Formulation is the first part of every project. Concentration is the second one. And the definition of concentration is you're going to put way more into it than you get out of it. So you're going to put a ton of work into it. A little drop's going to come out the other end. And if you're not willing to do that, like a lot of people get into this thing, like I got to get, I got to make my day rate from the day one. Good luck. <laughs> you know, like that's not going to happen. You know, like, you know, and, and so, you know, while you're figuring it out, while you're building that, that up, you're going to be hungry and you're going to do, you're going to look for doing things inexpensive there's a even today there's lots of things that i do that i do that i don't get paid for you know and i do them because a because i enjoy them and b because i'm trying to figure something out that isn't where the market isn't mature you know when the market will be mature is when when it gets figured out and when it gets figured out now i'm in the right place at the right time you know and so you want to be kind of working through that all the time is um and so and some things you know up uh, at all times have i done things for that, that I've been give I've been able to leverage opportunities because I was willing to do it for nothing, you know, and, um, and, and I think that people who are hard lined about that, you know, I, I used to, I used, I often say that, you know, free drink, you know, is, is the straw that drank a thousand milkshakes. <laughs> you know, so, so like you can be clear that by the time you get there, I will have already, <laughs> I will have already done, I already have those, those fields. So, um, so you just want to be careful. Now I generally generate, you know, we, we charge a lot of money now for what we do. <laughs> so it's not like you, you, you never get there, but you have to be willing to do the work to, to, to build that up. And also don't underestimate the, the, um, like white labeling. That's what we do a lot. So we might not be the main company that's on the project. Someone has hired our team to support them. And so when you're looking at trying to get like other types of projects, you don't have to necessarily be the front person. See who you can partner with or who you can work with and you can support and make them look bigger and better. And that be just like something that steamrolls you and brings you into another ecosystem of another type of clientele like that is that that is the majority of, <laughs> of of our money is because other agencies have hired us to help their team with the execution alex if you white label do not talk about your product you as an individual with the end client it is death like it is you know just just be clear that if you start talking about your own independent services when you're when someone white labeled you into when someone brings you in as a contractor um, you are, you now are 
a threat to them, which means they'll never hire you. They'll tell other people bad things about you. They'll like, it is like, it is death to your business to start selling your own wares at a, at a, at a location. And generally I consider if you, if I've never worked with that client and you bring me in to, to be a white label, to be the back end for that agency, I will never work with that client unless you approve me working directly with that client. Ever. A thousand percent. Like, you know, and I've had clients with a lot of money want to go around. They realized that we knew a lot about what we were doing. The agency may not have known as much <laughs> as we did. Like we, they brought us in. They were, didn't have a lot of experience and we just solved the whole thing. And they got very clear that we were the ones solving it. And they came to us two weeks later and said, hey, can we got another project coming up? And I'm like, you got to go through them. Like I'm, <laughs> like, like, I'm not, I'm not, I, you can't, you can't hire me directly because I didn't, I had not worked with that company before, you know, and, and I, you know, so you have to be very careful of that because this, this industry is very small, you know, it is, and, and it will get around really quickly that you are a threat and, um, and then nobody wants to hire you or partner with you because they, they consider you a, a threat to their business. And Jesse says in the comments, another factor that plays into whether you work for free is your life situation. So I think Alex might have shared that a little bit as well, is while you are building, like if it is a matter of getting a nine to five or getting something else where that becomes the investor that helps you run your startup, essentially getting the right clients and and moving into and, that space of paying. Alex? What I, I, I... I've talked about this in business, but I've also done it with clients, which is that I think of a tank track. So I have a tank track and I have what's paying the bills, what I'm trying to get rid of and what I'm trying to get to, you know, like, so I'm trying to get to this bigger business that I'm doing there and I'm doing here, I'm doing lots of less expensive and free things and I'm trying to figure this out and I'm, and I'm putting a lot of work into it. But I'm, you know, this is a small percentage of my business and you got to figure out how this can give you space, but this is whatever it is that is making money right now. And that is always the priority. You have to keep on keep the money coming in, <laughs> you know. So, so you're gonna you're gonna have this this thing here, and then this is the business or the client that you're trying to get rid of. You're not dumping it. You're not just throwing it out the door. You're still working on it, but you're not trying to you're not trying to keep building that capacity there. And you're letting this die off. And as soon as this one that you're trying to get to moves to the one that you are that's making the most money. You just add another one you know, like that's in the front that you're trying to get to. Like for me, it never stops of where I'm trying to get to. So I'm always adding that thing in front. But you you kind of do this tank track thing where you find something. And when I started, what was making money was not anything related to what I was doing. You know, like it was, I was, when I started, I was DJing weddings. And so I DJed weddings on the weekends and that paid my bills. That was enough to pay all my bills was just a Friday, Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, paid all my bills. And then I worked for almost nothing at Prime Sports Network to learn how, and then as an unpaid intern in the afternoons, to learn how to do 3D, to learn how to do computer graphics, to learn how to do all those things. And I did that for years, you know, to, to get that up to speed. And then I got a job. And then after that, I, you know, started to move. But it's never stopped of that little tank track. It's just that it started with something unconnected. Next question. Next question comes to us from Alexander Knight in Vancouver, British Columbia. And he says, I have a client that often asks for things and doesn't seem to realize it's going to cost more money. I've been producing his podcast in my studio for a while, but now he wants to do street interviews as well. How would you respond to that? Alexander? Yeah, I just wanted to provide a little more context because I I want to figure out a way to support what he wants to do because he got really excited about it, but it's going to require way more work, way more resources. I'd have to, first of all, drive somewhere, 
take camera equipment with me. I'm going to probably need to buy a gimbal, which I don't already own. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't, I need a tactful way of sort of reinforcing and supporting what he wants to do, but also explain to him that, do you have a bigger budget to do this? Cause it is more work and we don't have all the gear that we need to do it. Alex. I think a lot of it always, always comes down to how much you want to do it. Um, you know, so if you, if it's something that you see as a, as a business that you, that you can build in, not just for, for him, but to, for other people, I might invest in the hardware. I might get the things that I need. I might do the things that I'm, that I'm trying to do there to make that happen. Um, if you're not sure that it'll go anywhere or you're not sure that that's something you would do naturally, then, then you, you go, typically my response is always, that's a great idea. Love it. Think, I think that that, that would really make a big difference. And this is the cost <laughs> to do that. Like, you know, but it's never, I don't, I never say we don't have the budget. You'd be surprised at how big budgets can get if you never say that there's no budget for it. <laughs> you know, like you just, you just have to tell people that's great. And this is how we would do it. And this is what it would look like. You build, you build it all out to what they want and then say, and this would cost, you know, this is going to take an initial investment of $3,000 for the extra equipment. This is now that I don't tell people that, oh, I need to buy more equipment. I just buy it because the problem is if you say I have to buy it for your project, they consider it theirs. <laughs> like, like, you know, like, just so you know, like, you don't want to say I'm going to buy this, this gimbal for your project because they're going to be like, well, I just paid for the gimbal. You know, you can buy that gimbal. And then as you calculate the project, you renting that gimbal back to them at probably 10% of the retail. So when you think about the budget, don't think about, I have to buy a gimbal. Think about 10% of that gimbal applied to the cost of the overall project. And if, as long as you do 10 of them, you're going to end up paying that gimbal off. But but don't, you, you don't want to be, you know, and for tripods or hard assets, it's 150th. For electronics, it's typically 110th is, is, is a pretty average um, calculation for, for a rental rate for any equipment that you're getting. And, or you can also just look at, you know, look at rental houses and find out what they're charging. Noah? Education is just part of the business. And so your clients are not going to understand and know how much stuff costs and the process of it. And at first I was annoyed by that, but now I realize like that's part of the value that my company and what we can offer at Alexander to your client is that knowledge and that expertise. And so don't be afraid or, um, or, uh, challenged by the thought of like, oh, this is going to cost them more money. It's like, yeah, it costs what it costs. Like it's going to require more effort and more editing and more equipment and more things. And that's what you're asking for. And it's the yes. And yes, we can do that. And this is how much it's going to cost. Bill. I, you're seeing this as everybody who's addressing this thing, seeing this as a, um, as a production development play. I don't think it actually is. I think this is a talent development play. You're going to be helping him learn to be an interviewer because the success or failure of an interview circumstance, man on the street or any other kind, depends on the interviewer. Now, you may like this guy. He might be a friend. And so helping him develop his skills as an interviewer may be a very good play for you. But it's not that hard to set up and shoot an interview. It is hard to have somebody in front of that camera who is compelling and understands how to do that well. And so... Uh, you know, what the key to me is the person that's in front of the camera, not the person or the gear behind the camera. I think we can all do those kind of interviews. If you want to help him build his resume as an interviewer, I'd go for it. You know, friend, help him out. But don't look at it as like, as soon as you get interview stuff, you're going to get other interviewers to come and hire you to go do interviews. Because I don't think that's how it works. Because most people are really bad at interviews. 
And as Noah said, the education piece, like that's that's fundamental to this. Um, Tim said in the comments of, you know, tell, break down what it's going to cost to do this. And it ultimately, it's their decision. Like you are the service provider. You're the friend who's been helping them. What I also am reading, and I might be reading between the lines, is your concern about how much more work it is. So if the concern is the, the work and if you really want to do it, then maybe provide a resource of someone else if they, you know, if so they can still make this happen and going that way. At the end of the day, when you're providing a great client experience, that's what's going to matter the most because they won't think of it as like, oh, it's just too much work and you don't want to do it more. So I want this to be the best for you. And no matter what happens next, that you're, you know, you land on your feet and you're in good graces with them. Uh, Alex, Alexander, sorry. Yeah. So, I mean, Bill, your point about, um, you know, about being a good interview is really tough. That's actually one of the things that I've been kind of working on in the relation, the working relationship that we have. I've been trying to mentor him as far as uh, becoming a better interview. And over the last 12 months, he definitely you, I can see the results and he can see the results in just how how he's performing and he's getting better so i feel like i i would want to do it it's just that it it's it, it's a matter of cost and time so guy hear you yeah sometimes it's best to stay in your lane if you're a studio guy and uh, uh versus a field mixer there's an entirely different mindset and physical capability too i mean swinging a boom pole around in the cold for eight hours it, it's an experience so you might want to hire somebody else out to prove his business model works or just let the guy with 20 grand worth of gear and 20 years of experience do his job and you just you know mark it up 10 percent or whatever your markup is and move along and bill one last little thought remember that man on the street interview is a public performance can you do that? Or can he do that? Or can you help him get to be able to do that? And I say that only because I realize how difficult it was for me the first time I had to do that. Stand in front of a bunch of people and conduct a, an on-camera thing and control a crowd. It was a pivotal moment in my career. It was one of those things I looked back and I said, you can either do this or you can't. And a lot of people can't. And some people can. And maybe helping your friend find out whether he can do that is a perfectly rational thing to spend your time doing. And go for it. Your friend will be blessed by your helping him, but it's not easy. Next question. Kenneth Jones, Seattle, Washington says, one of my mentors said, nothing happens until somebody sells something. Should a video production company hire a sales staff or can technicians handle the load? Noah. So my background was uh, being a technician and I've developed into taking on sales for my company. Um, but the, the end of the day, we need all the parts. Like you need the salespeople, you need to execute and finish the production. You need the accounting people to make sure your numbers are in order, right? So all that, uh, you got to think of it as the collective. But uh, the question I, I would ask yourself or really your team is like, as far as those technicians go that are considering doing sales, are they willing and are they dedicated to spend the time and energy to learn that skill? Perfectly said. Next question. Next one comes from Eduardo Augustine in Panama, and this time he's back with what is the most effective method? Cold calling, emailing, marketing? Noah? Word of mouth. <laughs> References, um, earning uh, that reputation in your business and what you do is, is beyond all of these things. And yes, you could use these uh, approaches to try to get new clients, but ultimately word of mouth is king. 
yes, word of mouth is king, but it's also driven by email marketing, social media content. So you really want to look at what your capacity is for those things and recommend testing it out. So giving yourself a window of time of testing out so that you can see what does work best for you and also understanding the, the sales cycle of the kind of business that you're looking for because that will help you to determine, okay, do we start with the the email and then the email is followed up by the call and then the call is followed, like just understanding what that is because does it take a year of relationship building to get to that kind of that kind of client? Or is it are those those quick sales that yes, by an email or an ad that they they'll know to say yes, going back to the what has been said already of price, value, and educating the client. So I'd say test it, test out some avenues and see what does, what can work best for you. Because for me, it has been word of mouth. That's the majority of the business. But anytime there is content that's put out, somebody's like, oh yeah, I was thinking of, so right place, right time, because this piece of content popped up. Um, so those are like those those two areas. And one more point, there's a, a PR friend of mine that I remember her sharing a story of and, and saying, it's not always the person who is the best for the job that they necessarily hire. It's who's top of mind and that moment because if that email comes in, as Alex has shared, sometimes he's just sharing things with people. And maybe at, at the level where Alex, the people that he's talking to, it might be a little bit different. But that email comes in at the exact moment that they just got out of a meeting with XYZ and now they need to do something and your email pops up. So those are just some of those things that can play into people actually saying, I want to talk to you about this project. Bill? Just in a sentence or two, I just wanted to clean up. I think some of the conversational tech, uh, some of the terms are getting a little confused here. Uh, Cold calling is definitely a part of sales directly. Sales and marketing are really two different things. Marketing is the overall approach you have to the entire outside world. Sales is a specific. And so cold calling does fall under sales. Um, Emailing, you might be able to do a marketing email. You might be able to do sales emails. They're two different things. So I'm just trying to straighten up a little of the language so you don't get confused by the fact that marketing is a subset of sales. It's really not. Alex? I guess I would disagree. <laughs> Since the marketing is part of it, because marketing to me, you know, when it comes to sales, is kind of air support. You know, like it's it's the air air campaign that builds the, you know, that builds all those things up. It's very hard to sell into no marketing. You know, so I guess the, they, while they might be separate, it's, if you have no marketing and no way to do that, and you have to have, really have a lot of juice to make it work. And so, so the thing is, is that, you know, the marketing helps build that and the marketing can be in a lot of different ways, but I do think of it as, as that kind of the sales being, you know, marketing is something that you have to do all the time. And again, the best use of marketing is useful marketing, like just telling people what I, I hate getting emails that are about like, look at our new product and look at what, what, what we're rolling out and look at us, look at us, look at us. I just kind of ignore those, but people putting out useful things. And I think that, I think a good example is Guy, who's, I'm putting him on the spot. I think Guy does a great job at um, just being part of a community, just putting up things on, on, on YouTube that, that he cares about. And you don't, it doesn't, it's not like this is what we're doing with, with this. It is, it is literally just talking about um, products that he's passionate about, things that people need to know. And that brings people back, that builds a relationship with the EV store that people don't have otherwise. And I think that he does that exceptionally well. And Bill. 
Well, just my my point was that particularly in radio and things like that, we wouldn't have asked the sales director to help us with the marketing campaign to inform us about what's happening in the field. Oh, yeah, definitely. But I wouldn't expect the expertise of somebody who was a great sales manager handling a sales team would reflect directly into how should we plan our next marketing campaign. Every division should should inform the other divisions and you hope you don't have silos that don't talk to each other. But at heart, a marketing campaign is designed very differently, and a sales campaign may be one of the things they do. But in my experience, the way the business has been structured that I've worked with, they were a little bit different. Next question. Carmi Weinsvig is back from Redondo Beach. How often have you had a technical or primarily technical person in your sales process? Alex? 100% of the time. Like, you know, like 100% of the time, as soon as someone says, I'm interested in a product, we want a technical person in there talking to them. And usually it's it's me or or someone else, but it, you want someone technical. And here's the problem really is, is when salespeople start talking about numbers uh, that have people who haven't done it, they give, they, they give wildly incorrect answers. And it is, and then you have to back it up and rewrap it. And wow, is that painful? Um, you don't want sale, as soon as a salesperson gets somebody on the line, you want to put a technical person in there to talk to them about what they actually want to do, because the salespeople will either be wildly um, optimistic or wildly pessimistic about what can and can't be done. And there's the problem you really get into is that there are, we had one period in an SOW that cost us $10,000. You know, just the where they put that period meant something different. And when we went back and read it, we realized the client was right and we just had to eat it. You know, and so the thing is, is that, um, so, you know, you want technical people to be paying attention to the structure of what we're promising, to how we're promising it, but little things about when you're going to show, like not giving you enough load in time. They'll go, oh yeah, it's, it's okay. We can load in two hours before. And you're like, no, we cannot. You know, like we cannot do that. And so we, you know, and you don't want to come back to the client after you told them because once you told them, then they told their boss and then they got the okay. And now you come back and you say, no, 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 no. We have to change it. And that is just a disaster. So the best, I think the best people who sell this stuff are selling it as a, are, are definitely, um, they bring a technical person in almost immediately if they're not the technical person themselves. Noah? Yeah, my, my one of my bigger clients is uh, a billion dollar communications firm, and um, unfortunately, they do, uh, in my opinion, the wrong way. Where they do have more of a traditional sales method, and oftentimes, like Alex just outlined, they paint us in a box, and so then we have to work within these parameters, which don't make sense because somebody didn't really understand the fundamentals of what um, would cost more money or less money or what have you. Next question. Bob Sturdivant, San Antonio, Texas says, Alex, Alex mentioned not bidding when there is a three-bid contract. Having worked in government, the only way we could do that was with a sole source from your company. What would be a good area that a company could invest in to be a sole source? Go ahead, Alex. Um, the, the It's not that you don't triple, that I don't get into triple bids. I just get into triple bids where I already know I'm the winner. <laughs> So, so like, you know, and so there's a conversation, you know, like there's ways to triple bid that, that have you be, you know, and basically you're structuring, you basically, they'll structure the bid in a way that would make it almost impossible for someone else to, um, to do it. And that's how people get around. That's how people, you know, triple bidding is, is how, you know, penny pushers at the company ruin their business. You know, like, like they just ruin the projects by, by doing this. I, I know that they think they're having cost control and everything else, but what they do is they just 
putting out a whole bunch of bad product doesn't make it a good product. <laughs> you know? And so, so instead of having the people who want to work with them, because the people who are really good at what they do will either manipulate your triple bid or, you know, because there's two ways of handling triple bid. One is someone on the, you know, allows you to build it so that you're going to win. Or the most common thing to do, and you see this all the time in government, is you low bid, you get the, you, you low bid the project. So you, you bid a low project um, and you put a couple caveats in there that that are there that are really subtle. And then you just start ramping up the cost, you know, and, and you get it right back to where you want it. And I'm a, and I, I admit, I don't like doing that. So I don't really go into those, those projects, but, but people will do that. They'll just get a project in, um, they'll get it in low and then they just move it up. You know, when you, every little, every little change that the government person makes now gets, oh, well, that's another thousand dollars. And by the end, you're back to the same budget that you were before. Um, and so, uh, as far as sole source, a lot of times you end up partnering with other businesses. Um, if you're a small business, especially, so if you're a small business, you have an advantage. Um, small businesses are, the, the government has to hire a certain number of small businesses um, every year. And so, a lot of times, a big company like IBM or something like that will want to package small businesses um, into their bids because they because they can't get the bid otherwise. <laughs> it makes it easier for the government agency to do it if there's small businesses. Of course, there's other things like minority businesses um, benefit from from this even more. So you know how you structure your company and what what that looks like um, it can can make it easier for you to work with a large company that wants to just package you in, um, and and that's a good way to get started. You know in that process and there's usually you want to know what the threshold is, depending on how big the project is. Um, for some government agencies, it's $2,000. $2,000, anything under $2,000, it's a credit card. And that $2,000 sometimes can be broken up into multiple charges. <laughs> you know, and so, so you can get to a higher number, um, not, a, not an enormous number, but if it's like a $3,600 project, you just break it into two, two bills over different times. Bill? The fastest way to become a sole source is to have a unique aspect to what you do. You want a Picasso? Go to Picasso. You want a Picasso-like drawing? You can go to a lot of people. But it's the same thing. And it's very hard to do to have a unique thing. You remember the fish tossing people up that did those great marketing things uh, in the Pacific Northwest. They figured out early a unique way to present information. And for a long period of time, they stood alone. If you wanted that kind of video, you went to them because they had cracked the code of something that was utterly engaging, but that could be adapted to many things. Same thing that John Cleese's training things. Utterly unique approach to something that's existing out there. You become a sole source. And you can get something like a John Cleese video, but it won't be that because you don't have John Cleese. So that's the way you do it if you can figure out how to do it. And we'll give the last word to Guy. Yeah, I was in a CEO roundtable uh, and there was a gentleman who had traffic traffic safety products and he would always spec in things that only his company could do. So he had uh, these cabinets that he would put a light bulb in and that was a heated cabinet now. And now uh, through winter, he could have that. Then he had like battery backup solutions inside there. Then he would just spec in these things where you you become the sole source because there's nobody else that can do it. So in these triple bid type atmospheres, and I, I see them come across my desk almost every single day where the competition has put in, you know, specific brands. So that's the other thing is you register the brand and then you spec in that brand. So we see this going on all the time with cable installs for schools and things like that. So it's, it, it, it's a thing. It's specking in, you know, what is unique to you as Bill is saying. 
awesome conversation. We have only, it seems like only scratched the top because we have a lot of questions, which will be pushed back to you producers so that you can ask them again, either on another show or when we bring this conversation of sales back up, let us know in discord if this was valuable to you. Um, Thank you so much for your questions to our panelists. Thank you for your stories and insights. And of course, as always, our back-end production team for without which this would not be possible. Tomorrow, we're talking about playoff graphics. The Super Bowl is coming up soon, right? So you want to check back with us. And how far have we gotten? So the Talag Traversal has gone 66, roughly 66,000 miles at 106 kilometers. That's more than 599 million bananas. So for the rest of the schedule, head over to officehours.global and we'll see you in after hours. Thanks for watching. Bye. That was really great. Great show all. So much, still so much to learn and share. I always say, if you don't like talking about what you do, you probably shouldn't be charging people to do it. Good one, Jason. I'll write that down somewhere. Oh, Eric, thanks. Eric said this was a really great show. Thanks. Awesome. Have a great day or night or wherever you are in the world. <laughs>